Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. Mexico and Latin America are seen as a region moving backwards, creating little opportunities for growth and for its people. Yet, despite the international headlines and the negative reality, there is another side to this story. It is a story mostly untold outside the private equity circles of young entrepreneurs who are creating very successful businesses in Mexico and the region. To help us better understand the opportunity that private equity investors are seeing and to explain how these new unicorns are using technology to address enormous market deficiencies in areas such as banking and personal security, that it is my pleasure to welcome Luis Cervantes, Managing Director and Head of General Atlantic's office in Mexico City, Adolfo Babatz, CEO of one of the first unicorns called Clip, and Ricardo Amper, CEO of another unicorn called Inca. Luis, General Atlantic is one of the most successful private equity firms in the world. Can you tell us how do you see the opportunities coming out of Latin America and Mexico? Of course. Thank you very much, Mariana, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here with Ricardo and Adolfo. So we at GA have a global portfolio close to $60 billion. We are big investors in emerging market and in Latin America in particular. Latin America represents close to 15% of our global portfolio and has been, despite the macro environment, one of our best performing regions over the last five and 10 years. In Mexico, we have eight portfolio companies, $3 billion of value invested, and have been successful in terms of the returns we have been able to generate for our investors and in terms of liquidity achieved over the last few years. We are very bullish in the opportunity for GA in Mexico, as we believe Mexico is one of the last major economies to transition to a digital economy. And we believe that we are at an inflection point in that transition for several reasons. First, the infrastructure needed for digital companies to thrive, including cost of data, smartphone penetration, payment systems, and last mile delivery networks has been created. This was not the case five or seven years ago, where the infrastructure was not in place for new companies to emerge. Secondly, and most importantly, entrepreneurship is flourishing and capital is finally going into the country. Last year, we saw more capital invested in Mexican venture capital and growth than the previous five years combined. And this capital is not only coming from major investment funds, but also from global tech companies that are contributing to the development of the ecosystem. Mexico has become a top five market for the likes of Facebook, Uber, Spotify, etc. And together with the capital that's going in from investment funds is contributing to the development of the ecosystem. 
And finally, the pandemic accelerated consumer adoption of digital platforms. During the pandemic, Mexicans started shopping online. Mexicans started paying online. Mexicans started to consume the digital platforms and really accelerated the growth of these platforms by five to seven years. This has created a massive opportunity for new entrepreneurs and therefore an investment opportunity for global firms such as GA. Luis, what percentage of the market share goes to digital natives versus companies like Amazon or Uber or others that you mentioned? It really depends on the industry. There are some, such as e-commerce and streaming, where global synergies are very high. So these industries are dominated by international players. But there are many others that are very local, where the local component really matters, that are dominated by local players. That includes payments, online grocery, edtech, and digital banking. A new trend that is emerging as well is that not only are global companies coming into Mexico, but Mexican entrepreneurs are going global. So these companies are not competing against the global players, not just in Mexico, but in other markets as well. We are seeing Kavak not only becoming the leading player in Mexico, but the leading player in emerging markets. We are seeing Incode, led by Ricardo, really becoming a global company. And we think many others are following. So the opportunity to invest in Mexican entrepreneurs is not just about Mexico, but it's also backing their plans, their business models as they go international. Luis, how are these opportunities that you are just describing different from other regions in the world? When we think about Mexico, Mexico has one of the toughest macro environment among all global markets. I mean, we see currency depreciations, we see instability in the political environment, we see changes in laws, we see inflation, we see increasing rates. One of the implications of having a very tough macro environment is that we have very big problems and tech has a big role solving these problems. Because the problems are so big, the opportunity is immense as well. Let me give you a few examples. Clip and Adolfo will speak about it. In Mexico, it's very tough for merchants to accept credit cards, which resulted in less than 7% of merchants in the country offering the ability to pay with cards. And then Clip came. Mexico is also one of the most fraudulent countries in the world, which results in very costly financing costs, as the people that behave well have to pay for the ones that don't. And then Incode came and attacked that problem. Buying and selling a used car in Mexico is a nightmare. It's all done peer-to-peer with asymmetric information on the quality of the car and no access to financing. And then Carlos Garcia came. Mexican entrepreneurs are attacking big problems that have resulted from a macro environment that's really tough and that is creating big problems, but also very big opportunities. Right. You mentioned these macroeconomic problems, and I really don't want to go deep into it. Have these sort of policy reversals that we're seeing in Mexico right now, have they changed your views at all about continuing to invest in Mexico or in Latin America? How are you overcoming these challenges? They haven't. We've been lucky that we are not investors in the industries that have been most affected, such as energy. We also have the policy of not investing in companies that depend a lot on the government because rules change very often when you serve the government and it's very difficult to underwrite the growth of long-term companies that depend on that degree of uncertainty. We've seen a lot of volatility in Mexico, but because of the volatility, we've seen a lot of entrepreneurship as well. Volatility creates opportunity for entrepreneurs. And that's, I think, one of the main opportunities that we are seeing in Mexico. 
one of the issues that does concern us is the big concentration that we have in a few industries. One of the implications of a very tough macro environment is that every few years we have a big crisis in Mexico. And in big crises, there's always industry consolidation as the big players take advantage of the crisis to acquire small players. Industries that are too consolidated tend to result in very fat profit margins and very weak customer service and therefore create big profit pools for disruptors to attack. The financial services industry is a great example that has these characteristics, creating great opportunities for companies such as Clipping Payments and Clarin Digital Banking to go after a huge profit pool by offering cheaper products with better customer service. But it's very important that the regulatory arms of the government and the antitrust authorities enforce the competition in these different industries in order to allow for the disruptors really to go in and offer better services and more access to products to all Mexicans. Luis, mainly you spoke about some concentration in the financial industry. Are these Latin American unicorns mainly concentrated in fintech or are you seeing a broader space? Fintech is definitely the biggest opportunity because of the size of the profit pool that is at stake. And when I define the profit pool, it's both the profit pool that is currently being captured by the incumbents. We have banking industries that are very concentrated in Mexico, Brazil, etc. And as I mentioned before, because of the concentration, there's a big opportunity for disruption. But there's also an opportunity to serve consumers that are not being served by the current incumbents. Mexico has one of the lowest bankarization rates among major economies, and that creates a huge potential new profit pool for companies that through technology are being able to serve this customer base in a manner that it's impossible for incumbents to do so given their very fat cost structures. So fintech is definitely one that is big, but we're seeing many other ones emerge. We're seeing big verticals being transformed by technology. I already mentioned the auto vertical being transformed by Kavak. We're seeing a same trend in the grocery vertical being transformed by Justo, Corner Shop and others. Education is being transformed uh, and that is resulting in many unicorns as well. And then new technologies that really are coming out of Latin America and Mexico. And I think Inco is a great example that are really solving the underlying problem that many industries are facing, which is the prevention of fraud. So I think fintech will continue to take a big share given the relative size, but we are seeing unicorns across different verticals, which is very good news for investors and for consumers as well. I may be wrong with this number, but I recently read that there are 16 unicorns in Latin America, of which eight are in Mexico, including our two other guests, Clip and Incode. Adolfo, as the CEO of Clip, the first payments unicorn in Mexico. You are using technology and artificial intelligence to democratize financial services. You allow small businesses to access e-commerce solutions, among other things. Can you tell us a little bit about Clip and about the opportunity that you see ahead of you? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, thank you for the invitation. Super happy to be here with you, Mariana, and, and with Ricardo and uh, an old friend, Luis. Yeah, so Clipos, I started the company. It's going to be this year. It's going to be 10 years. I was working at PayPal at that time in the Bay Area and left to start the company. And the, the opportunity that we see, that we have seen since the company started, 
It's actually pretty simple, Mariana, and it's very related to what Luis just mentioned. In fintech, in emerging markets, the total addressable market, the opportunity, tends to be much larger than in developed economies. And I'm going to give you an example. In the United States, the vast majority of consumers and merchants, customers in general, are already served by some form of solution. There's still people that are not served. There's some people that are underserved. But the vast majority of the population or the customer base, it doesn't matter if it's B2B or B2C, it's, it's already served. As a result, when you come out with a product, you come out with a niche, and from that niche, you expand. A point in this case is Square in the United States. It's a company that does something that is very similar to Clip. They have an, an extraordinary job. And they started out with a niche and they expanded from there. But it's still a relatively small piece of the pie of the entire market because th these markets are so developed and so established. When you go to emerging markets, you have the vast majority of the population either underserved or unserved. So it's the exact opposite as you have in developed economies. As a result, you have a greenfield market ahead of you. Now, the best example of this that we have seen is Ant Financial in China, right? Which it became from nothing to be the most dominant financial services firm in China in a matter of just a few years. I remember back in 2018, I gave this exact same example in the Latin American Venture Capital Association in a panel. And some people, you know, they didn't believe this argument. But now we're starting to see more of these examples. The most recent one, back then it was just the example of Ant. Today, we have example of Nubank in Brazil. They have now the vast majority in terms of number of consumers in Brazil. And in the case of Mexico, we have Clip. Today, Mariana, two out of three merchants that are onboarded into the Mexican payment system are onboarded through Clip. Two out of three. So it's exactly the same thing. So you're starting to see these patterns repeat in every single market. In Mexico, like Luis correctly mentioned, we were lagging on the digital uplift for a few years for a variety of reasons. It has to do mostly with competition, but that is another topic. But now we're catching up and the country will catch up. And the time is not that it will come. The time has already come when companies like Clip are completely taking over. And the good thing about this new world that we're living in is that it's a digital and it's a tech-enabled world where the most important asset is not money, is not political connections, is not if you're an incumbent, it's brain power. And when you as a company are able to attract, retain, and really become a magnet of talent, you become unstoppable as a firm. And we have seen this, I mean, this is not my theory, okay? We have seen this with Silicon Valley firms for many, many years. We have seen this in Israeli startups for many, many years. And now we're starting to see this in Mexico and, and many other emerging markets. So I think that the opportunity that we have in front of us is just tremendous because, again, we're in front of a greenfield market and this type of companies like Clip, like Incode, Clara, that Luis mentioned, and Financial, Nubank will take the vast majority of this new market that is opening because we're the ones that are really prepared to do so. So I think times are good. It has taken quite a while. I mean, in my case, it has been 10 years. <laughs> so yeah, it's a miracle that I still have hair, but, uh, the, but, but it's there now. It's there. And I think we're all super thrilled to see this across the region and in Mexico specifically. Adolfo, let me ask you one more question. You mentioned some of the barriers you've had to overcome. Mm -hmm. and you mentioned talent. Talent is a very important piece of this yep. pie, I assume. How do you see the talent coming out of Mexico and Latin America? Are the people prepared? Do you have to train them? How do you compare that with other sectors, other countries, other regions? So I think any tech founder or CEO will tell you the same thing. 
that talent is the hardest thing to do and is the hardest thing to get right. And that talent is super scarce. And this is pretty much the same across every region, every country, every industry. Now, I think this was even more pronounced a few years ago in the case of Mexico specifically, because the people that were really well trained, they tend to work for very large firms that paid really well. I mean, I, I had to go through this. And when you ask them to join you, why would they join little small firm? They're very comfortable. They're very well paid. They're doing interesting jobs. There's no reason to switch, right? Now, 10 years later, startups have become the hot place to work, right? So it's now big companies that are having trouble retaining this big talent. So within that available talent, we're seeing a shift in preferences towards us, towards the startups. And this is a little bit of a death spiral for incumbents that do not offer good employment options. And it's a virtuous cycle for companies like us. That is with existing talent pool. Now, in terms of new talent pool, we're seeing the same as every single other country around the world. We're seeing that we don't have enough technical talent. There's just not enough. There's a deficit of engineers. There's a deficit of data science. There's a deficit of product managers. And as a result, you're starting to see global firms like Clip just open hiring hubs all over the world. So you can compensate for the lack of talent or the fierce competition you have for talent in some regions because money is flowing into the region and you can offset by opening up hubs in other parts of the world. So I think it's a mixed bag, Mariana, in terms of talent. I don't think you will find this answer that I just gave you any different if you ask a CEO or founder from the States, from Germany, from Israel, from China, I mean, whatever, whatever country from Argentina, from Brazil. So it is a main challenge. It is a main challenge and it's the hardest one to solve. And it's the actual one that will make the company win or not. It's talent. So in this race for talent, how are you seeing it? What are you doing to attract talent? So I think there are a few things, right? You, you need to first bring in the talent, number one. Number two, you need to retain the talent. And number three, you need to train and grow and promote the talent. So the first piece, which is making the pool larger of available talent that you can hire, the pandemic really helped via Zoom. The world really opened and it has happened to everyone. So that's one. But we do see a value in having hubs, hubs where people can concentrate. And we're opening hubs in different uh, regions of the world. So we have Mexico City, as, as I mentioned uh, briefly. We have Guadalajara in the west of Mexico. We also have had for a very long time an office in Salt Lake City in, in Utah, in the United States. Another one in San Francisco. We're starting to hire there again. And another one in Miami, in Florida. We also opened up last year an office in Buenos Aires, in Argentina. There's magnificent talent in Argentina. And also we're opening an office in India. And the reason for this is so we have a larger pool of people, number one. And number two, Mariana, there's an intrinsic value in diversity and diversity of experiences, diversity of preferences, diversity of just the way you have lived. And if we all come from the same place, we look all the same, we're going to produce products that are exactly the same. And I have been, since I started the company, a firm believer in opening up Clip to different views and different type of people. So it is a very diverse company from many, many points of views. That's point number one, the acquisition of talent. Then you have to retain and grow and promote the talent. And for that, we have what we call the employee value proposition, which what this does is 
It's a framework where we provide a holistic value proposition to employee that starts, of course, with the salary, the equity package, benefits, etc. Kind of the monetary piece, and then the actual work, which is it's highly engaging and highly visible, the work that people get to do because they get to see the product quickly and it's, it's a product that benefits millions of people. So it's something that is very tangible for people. And for a certain type of profile of people, it's, it's incredibly motivating. And also the growth within their career, how they're going to grow, where do they want to focus, where do they want to specialize. And for that, we provide an internal university where people can take courses and develop themselves and get into projects that they'd like. So when you have this coherent employee value proposition that is not only about money, is not only about career development, you start retaining and have a lot of engagement with the people, with employees that, that are working for the company. So that's the second piece. And from there, of course, is the growth piece. How do you grow? And from there, you take those people that are really doing really well and you provide them with more opportunities. You provide them with more projects to really grow and, and make sure that they can display their full capacities. So that is the only way. Firms that go and just throw money at people, it works for a few months and then it stops working because money is not the only thing people are after. It's the entire combination, the entire package that you need to provide to employees. So that's why we have different hubs. That's the way we have addressed this. And we believe this is our main competitive advantage is exactly this framework that we have established and uh, on the way we relate to the other Clippers as, as a firm. Luis has heard me every board meeting for the last six years pound on this every single meeting. Absolutely. Let me now turn to Ricardo as the CEO of Incode a leader in the digital identity space. You provide frictionless security and the company actually started in the Bay Area, but you had Mexico as your first market. Can you tell us a little bit about Incode, your experiences in Mexico? And what do you mean when you talk about the wow moment that you aim to give to your customers? First of all, thank you for inviting me to your podcast and it's good to see you, Adolfo and Luis here. So as you said, Encode is a biotrust company. So what we do is we create software to verify people's real identity where you're not going to the bank and you need to open that bank account online or you want to register for a surgery online. And so we deal primarily with the use cases where security is important and honestly, where the user experience was really bad. And if you think about identity in the one moment, it's really nonsensical that every time that you want to go and open that bank account or loan or you want to go into the hospital, you have to go and spend a lot of time filling those forms. And it's a terrible user experience, but it's even not secure. There's a lot of fraud. And so we imagine a world where there's significant more trust, where when you go and do these use cases, instead of being days and hours or a lot of minutes, it takes you less than 30 seconds to open that bank account, go to the doctor, prove your identity on Zoom with the notary. And it's a huge opportunity that COVID created. So COVID accelerated the digitalization of legacy use cases by about 10 years. And identity was part of that. And it's not just the opportunity to have a digital identity, but it's to have the opportunity to have a much better experience, a much more advanced identity. If you think about identity, uh, the way we usually do it when it comes to real life is using a system that was invented by the Egyptians 3,000 years ago, where you use a piece of paper or plastic to prove your identity, which is we're in a mission to eliminate that. And where the default was that a human being had to do that experience. 
And the problem with that, the problem with something that can be easily faked or humans can be extremely biased is the lack of trust. Because when there's a fraud, the problem is not a fraudulent or the money stolen is what they really steal is they steal access. Because what happens with that interest rates go up. People don't go into the branch because they're getting Honestly, and that happens in Mexico a lot, discriminated. People don't go to vote because it's a long way or it's not just the right time. Or people don't get into your Uber car. And so what we are excited every day is about creating and empowering a world of trust. And we believe that trust is one of the defining things that differentiate the developed versus the developing world. And just a bit of data here that I think is interesting. While in the U.S., 51% of Americans trust each other. In Latin America, it's only 11%. It's a huge difference. And that's going down by all the macroeconomic things that are happening. In the U.S., 80% of people are thinking that 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 is going low. So the one moment as a person is to do this in a very instant, seamless way with high security. But the one moment as a society is that this identity is the entrance to most of the things that we do, whether you are paying, you're going to the doctor, you're trying to pick up your child from school, that's identity. And if identity can actually help improve the level of trust, then you would see lower interest rates and more participation in democracies and services that are accessible to a lot more people. Ricardo, tell me one more thing. You started your company in San Francisco, but you used Mexico as your starting point. What was that experience and what have you learned from Mexico that you're applying in your whole operations? Yeah, we started, as you said, in Silicon Valley, and it was a group of Mexicans, Americans, and Europeans. And we started developing that technology in the U.S. with, I would say, mostly a global talent, a lot of Mexicans for sure. And we decided that our first market was going to be Mexico because that's where you would see the worst experience. For example, when it comes to financial services, the most fraud, highly regulated because, of course, the government wants to curb, you know, money laundering and other crimes. And what we found was that when you create your product in Mexico, you are forced to create an awesome product because you find phones that are not the latest iPhone. You find cameras that are a little bit blurry. People don't have the biggest bandwidth or storage plans. Some people are just new to technology. And all that while, you know, a lot of fraud and a lot of macro problems. And so what ends happening is essentially that we created a product that would solve these issues, fraud and, and access in Mexico. And when we went as a market into the U.S. and other parts of the world, the product just flew. We wouldn't have created Encode as it is now without having Mexico as our first market and, and being confronted to those obstacles. Well, if you can make it in Mexico and Latin America, you can make it anywhere then. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I'll ask you a few questions to all of you. You know, please feel free to jump in and sort of to answer however you want to answer it. How do you compare Latin American firms with their peers in North America in terms of digital readiness? I think, Maria, you're going to see a lot of variability around this. I don't think it's good to generalize. And the reason in the case, for example, of Mexico, you have almost three economies, right? Number one is the one that exports and that is extremely competitive and that is probably highly digital ready. As you know, Mexico is one of the largest exporters in the world, the United States' main trading partner. And a lot of it is manufactured goods, it's not commodities. So those firms tend to be very competitive, very, very competitive and very digital, already enabled or digital ready. 
Then you have the other extreme, which is the old Mexico, right? Which is very small companies that have very little access to technology and are lagging behind in terms of productivity and income per capita. Those are the people that we serve as a company, Clip. The very small guys that don't have access to payment methods, don't have access to digital payment methods, they don't have access to digital services, e-commerce, things like that. And then you have the ones in the middle, which are the ones that have an oligopolistic position in the country. Those are the worst. And those are the ones that actually are not digital ready, will never become digital ready, and they're in for a ride with this new wave that is coming in with tech. And they're in for a ride because they're not going to be able to attract the talent, what we were discussing a few minutes ago, number one. Number two, they're not willing to go digital. They don't see the writing on the wall. And I think it's a little bit late now. I mean, they should have started that process probably 10 years ago. We have the tale of three different countries in one single place. And I don't know about the rest of Latin America, but I tend to believe there's something similar going on. Of course, you have the startups, but the startups are kind of a different thing. And they're relatively small in terms of number of firms compared to the rest. So let's just put them on the side. But within those three, I think in the case of Mexico, we're going to see the export sector just boom. The smaller companies with companies like Clip starting to provide access to tech and services, they're going to be much better. We have already seen that in the United States how many small firms are thriving in e-commerce and sales. Even though there's a lot of talk about Amazon and Amazon is like this big evil, there are very, very, very encouraging signs and data tells us that small firms that really go digital, they're thriving in this economy. And the ones in the middle, like I said, the big incumbents with oligopolistic positions that have not really had to innovate to really get to where they are, they're going to be in trouble. Some of them are already in trouble, but they're going to be in big, big trouble in the next 10 years. And we're going to see fortunes destroyed over the next few years on this. Just a complimentary view to what Adolfo was saying. I think what I've seen in terms of digitalization, the incentive in the U.S. to adopt is just wages, right? Like wages are a lot higher. And so you need to adopt digital software to be more productive. And what happens a lot in emerging markets is that salaries are low. So a lot of those are not needed because you just compensate with people. But I think there's two things that are changing. First, COVID opened a huge market. I think Luis mentioned those use cases where they were being forced to digitalize, right? Whether it's schools and e-commerce and restaurants, like, and I think that was amazing. And hopefully this will stay like that. And then I think there's another category where technology is just a lot better than human beings. And, and that's on the AI front. Because on the AI front, for example, in our industry and identity, when you compare someone, let's say that you go to the bank, you want to show your ID, right? And they have to kind of very quickly determine, is it real or not? Are you that person? Uh, there's two things that are happening. Yeah, people are not experts and, and cannot read IDs and detect all those minimum changes as technology, particularly with AI can. And for all that people say about AI in terms of bias that the AI has, well, technical bias you can measure, the human bias you can't. There's a lot more bias on the human side. And so I think in that category of AI, it completely changes the economics because it's so much better to do it through these technologies than through human beings. That is why, for example, Mexico is going to be one of the most advanced countries in, in digital identity in the world because these problems that I just mentioned, right, plus the government adopting biometrics because of the democracy problems we had in the past is making Mexico an example of digital identity in the world. Luis, would you like to jump in? Yes. So I think if you take the picture right now and see the digitalization of the economy is still relatively low across industries. 
E-commerce penetration in Mexico is 8%. It is 20% in the U.S. Online grocery shopping is 1% in Mexico, is 12% in the U.S. The usage of cash is more than 90% of the economy in Mexico, is less than 50% in some developed markets. We are still behind, but that is changing, and that is changing fast. One, the industries are digitalizing at a fast pace. So the 8% of e-commerce penetration used to be 4% two years ago. The industry has doubled over the last 24 months. Secondly, talent is going after these companies, as Adolfo and Ricardo mentioned. If you survey people at the top universities in Mexico, I can guarantee you that more than 50% will tell you that their top choice is joining a startup. That number was probably less than 5% 10 years ago. Joining a startup was something that you were ashamed to tell your parents. Now it's a symbol of pride and changing the status quo in Mexico. And equally importantly, capital is going to the disruptors and not to the incumbents. Five years ago, if you look at all the investment done in Mexico, 95% of the private investment went to the incumbents and only 5% went to disruptors. Last year, 90% of the funding went to disruptors and only 10% of the funding went to the incumbents. So we're seeing the creations of a virtual cycle where entrepreneurship is flourishing, talent is following entrepreneurs, capital is following these companies, and these companies are creating a new value proposition that is just so superior to the incumbents that is driving an industry growth and a catch-up in terms of the digitalization of the economy that is making Mexico one of the fastest growing digital economies in the world. I guess you three believe that this network of startups, talent, and funding is really creating this virtuous circle. Do you believe that these emerging technologies and companies will be enough to revive Latin America as a dynamic region in the world? I don't know if it's going to be enough, but it's certainly necessary. And it's a critical thing. And I'll, I'll explain a bit why. One of the reasons why there's so much innovation in the U.S. is because people are not afraid to fail. Failure is necessary in innovation. And we were born, as I'm sure Adolfo and Luis were old enough, to were born where if you failed in Mexico, you were done, right? It was very difficult to get up. And also, it was quite unfair because your success was more correlated to which school do you go? How many connections do you did? And I think venture capital and private equity is actually a great democratizer. It's, it's a meritocracy, right? If you're smart enough, right, to create something worthy, then you're going to have a lot of equally or more smart people helping you grow. And so I think this is absolutely necessary. Now, there's one thing I think that is missing when I went to the U.S. By the way, I found the global talent is great. The only thing that I think is we need a lot more examples and a lot of more success stories. I think we're just starting, right? Because you need people advising you on how to hyper growth and how to go through these challenges. And I think that's a part that's still new. But what I'm very happy about and confident is that the virtuous circle is now a reality. I think I was telling you, Mariana, that for my Series A, it took me 127 funds and I had 98 no's consecutively. And a lot of it because we had concentration in Latin America. And so what was interesting about that is that in two years, I would say people would tell me in Silicon Valley, that's something I don't like. And then two years after that, they were telling us, well, that's actually a great asset because you're actually thriving in a much more difficult market. You're going to thrive everywhere else. And so GA and others coming to the market so strongly is actually something that I hope with time is going to change completely the outlook economically and socially in Mexico. Adolfo, would you like to jump in? Mexico is a middle-income country, as well as Brazil, same as Costa Rica, 
Uruguay, Chile, Colombia. I mean, we have ups and downs and we're not as stable as the United States, of course. But the region is not stagnant. The region has problems. And like Luis mentioned, those problems are going to be what make amazing companies come. The example Ricardo just gave, it's the best example in the world. If he cracks what he has cracked in Mexico, he can crack it anywhere. And I do think that these companies that come out of this generation of entrepreneurs, that some of them will go and fund other companies. Some of them will go and invest and raise funds. They will transform the society. And something that Ricardo mentioned that it was, I think, incredibly important. It will make it more democratic because the most basic and the most pressing problem I think we have in the region is inequality. Luis, Ricardo, Adolfo, unfortunately, we have come to the end of this episode. I cannot thank you enough for this conversation. And I would like to close by emphasizing the enormous opportunities that you are creating in Mexico as the country transitions into the digital economy. Your businesses are, in fact, attacking some of the big problems and you're turning them into big opportunities. Your experiences in dealing with a difficult market such as Mexico is also making you more resilient as you enter into other markets, and you have certainly caught the attention of international investors. In fact, in 2020, Mexico was the second largest private equity venture capital market in the region. It is true that the country and the region still faces a lot of challenges to overcome and has to deal with policy reversals. But what you have demonstrated thus far is that your stories have the potential not only for great businesses, but hopefully for long-lasting change. My name is Mariana Campero. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 